Would you turn with me to a familiar passage, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be focusing on the first 12 verses. We've been looking over the last couple of weeks at the idea of discipleship and that we are called not just to be disciplers or followers of Jesus, but to also be disciple-makers. As Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, bringing them into the church, teaching them everything I have commanded you. And so that was a role for his first disciples to take his place once he ascended into heaven and continue on his work, and that continues to be our role as we continue to follow him as disciples, but also trying to make other disciples, help grow them into disciples as well. And uh, so along the way, we've been asking the question, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to, or what does it look like for us to be disciple makers, to make disciples of others? And we said, well, maybe it's best to just watch Jesus. How did he do that? And so we've been following Jesus these last couple of weeks, asking, how did Jesus uh, make disciples? And the, uh, the attention so far, we've really focused on, on two different phases of disciple-making. First, Jesus simply said, come and see. Come and hang out with me. See if you like it. See if you like me. See if you like what life with me is all about. Uh, and then a little later, he came back to them and said, now come and follow me. And then they had to make a decision whether they would be led by him as a rabbi and taught by him to uh, be disciple-makers themselves. And uh, part of that, then, was to teach them what does it look like, what does it mean to be a disciple. And uh, so Jesus, after he calls the disciples, Matthew uh, shows him then gathering them to teach them through the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to focus on the first 12 verses of that this morning. Um, and we'll look at that in just a few moments. So if you just keep your Bibles open, we'll get there. But let's open with a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, uh, we know Jesus called us to be disciples, making disciples. We also know that in and of ourselves, we are unable to, unable to do that task without your power, without your leading. And so we pray that you would empower us, lead us, help us to not only understand it, uh, the words that are spoken uh, by Jesus, but also to, to take them to heart and seek to live them out as his disciples growing into disciple-makers. We pray this in his name. Amen. So over the last two weeks, we have saw how Jesus invited prospective disciples to come and see, to hang out with him and see how they liked it. But then he revisited them a little later with the invitation, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Come and follow me based on that experience that they had of being with him. Also based on his promise to equip them and his vision of the kingdom of God. And so for those who dropped their fishing nets and followed him, now Jesus' first lesson is on the kind of character it takes to be a disciple. The kind of character it takes to be a disciple. Now despite the way we think of Jesus, ultimately he was a revolutionary in his society. The disciples got a glimpse of this when he overthrew the money changers' tables in the temple. The world has been changed by revolutionaries, for better or for worse. Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, Martin Luther's 95 Theses, 
the U.S. Declaration of Independence, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, all caused or were part of causing major revolutions. But none of these writings or speeches was as revolutionary as Jesus' preamble to his most famous sermon. The Beatitudes flew in the face of contemporary values, drew the wrath of political and religious leaders, and ultimately led him to the cross. So let's look again at the revolutionary words of Matthew 5, 1 to 12, the Beatitudes. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Notice that. The crowds are following him, but who's he teaching here? He's teaching his disciples. That's who he's gathered. That's who he's directing his attention to. So what he's saying here is this is how you are a disciple. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is Jesus' description of what his disciples were to be like and what disciples, including us, are to be like today. We are to be part of an underground society that doesn't fit with the rest of the world. People who belong to another kingdom. Indeed, kingdom was on the forefront of their minds. The disciples in their culture were expecting a new kingdom brought by God's Messiah, one that they thought Messiah would come and overthrow Rome with military might and establish his empire on earth. But Jesus reveals to his disciples how his kingdom differed and what they'd be involved in. So when Jesus comes on the scene and announces the kingdom is near, it's a little different than most of them anticipated. And so he spells it out in the Sermon on the Mount with a new value system, a new view of the kingdom, how to be part of it and how to live in it. And some of the Pharisees and other religious leaders uh, thought that Jesus was promoting a new law, a new Torah. They had the Torah from God, but they had more than that. They had taken that Torah and formulated what was called the oral Torah or the oral law, where they, they took these, these principles from God's Torah, God's good teaching in the Old Testament, and then expanded them and, and in many cases legalized some of them, made, it, made them more legalistic. So they had a, the series of, of laws that they added onto it, a series of interpretations, which they believed if one uh, followed those things, they would be part of God's kingdom. In other words, they would kind of earn their way into God's kingdom by following these laws, these interpretations. 
But Jesus goes on to say later in chapter 5, verse 17, and, and the rest of the chapter, you follow the letter of Torah, but miss its intention. You want to hear what the law of God is? It's not just don't kill, but don't be angry. It's not just don't commit adultery, but don't lust in your heart. And he points to their hypocrisy, that their legalism was actually leading people away from God's law rather than closer to God. And so he points them instead to a kingdom of grace, not only law. They were, there were probably some Jews in, in Jesus' day that kind of suspected and saw this hypocrisy in some of their teachers and leaders, but didn't dare say anything. Well, now Jesus tells his disciples the way it is. And he basically says, this is going to be your battle. This is going to be your kingdom clash. Now fast forward almost 2,000 years, and we also have a kingdom clash. We also have a battle. Now, although legalism still exists in many ways among Christians, it's maybe not our biggest battle. Today our battle is really with an opposite worldview, uh, no less damaging, and that we might call relativism. Relativism. Relativism is not new. Back in 400 B.C., Protagoras said, man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things, not God. Man's the one that makes the decisions on, the, on rules and how we live. And that became the mantra of the Enlightenment, which is really the backdrop of our thinking in Western culture today. The idea that, that there is no objective truth, such as God's law, but that we can just kind of make up our own rules and values for our lives. But if there is no God-given truth, then we have slogans like, well, if it feels good, do it. Well, Christian disciples are called to be revolutionaries in a society that builds its kingdom on this principle, relativism. And so we need to fight against that. How do we do so? How do we fight against the idea that that man is, can make up his own mind, that can, man can make up his own values. Well, we start by affirming the existence and priority of God's objective truth and values, that there is an absolute right and wrong, that the Bible does spell out how we are to live, and that that is authoritative for everybody. But even more importantly, perhaps, because this is where we meet people uh, on a daily basis, we need to become disciples who have that revolutionary character described in the Beatitudes, a character that flies in the face of today's values. And so let's look at those character qualities for a few moments. First, Jesus calls us to spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, our society admires self-confident, independent, self-made people, who believe that they can achieve their own salvation by their goodness. Jesus calls us to personally admit our spiritual poverty, that we can't earn our salvation, that we have no choice but to take charity, which is really what God's grace is all about. This is something God values in his people, and it's not just in the New Testament. Isaiah 57, 15, we read, For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, 
but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus will expand on this uh, later in a a parable, the parable of the, the proud Pharisee in contrast to the humble or poor in spirit tax collector. Jesus also calls us to spiritual soberness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. While our society prefers pleasure seekers who just do it to to downers who talk about sin, Jesus calls us to a soberness and grief over our sin. But also, really, any type of mourning in life. Jesus reminds us that God honors grief, repentance, heartache over loss. Jesus himself was a fellow mourner with us, weeping over the lost, his lost friend Lazarus, but also over the loss of Jerusalem to her sin. Grief is part of a disciple's life, including mourning and repentance over our sin, and Jesus shared in that grief. He also calls us to humility or gentleness. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Well, to make it in today's society demands power, pride, ability, aggressiveness. Jesus calls us to humble ourselves before God, and he will exalt us. The word meek that's used here in the Greek literally spoke of a wild animal whose strength has been tamed and it's now being used for a positive purpose. So imagine a wild horse that's finally been broken or tamed, but then it can be used to pull a carriage or it can be used for someone to ride the horse into battle. So it's not, meek does not equal weak. It equals strength under control. And that's what disciples are to have. Disciples are called to selfless service and sacrifice, to a content gentleness that shows in our willingness to lay aside our rights rather than fight for them, but doing so not because we're weak, but doing so because our strength is under control, under the control of the Holy Spirit. Jesus also called us to righteous hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. While our society hungers after material goods, power, fame, It prides itself in fulfilling their desires. Our society is all about fulfillment. So the man, that uh, middle-aged man that's having an identity crisis, buys a red Porsche and has the bumper sticker, he who dies of the most toys wins. That's our society. But God says, no, we need to recognize our emptiness and hunger for first for a right relationship with God, but then also for a righteous world, even as God hungers for a righteous world. Such a hunger is a reflection of God's character, especially what he calls us to in Micah 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. If we focus on hungering after righteousness rather than hungering after worldly goods or worldly success, then as Jesus says in Matthew 6, all these things will be added to you as well. He also calls us to compassion. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
while our society tends to leave others to fend for themselves, kind of leaves them at the side of the road, get a job, no one ever gave me anything. Jesus calls disciples to be merciful to others because we have received mercy. We are to see others and love others as we see and love ourselves. Disciple or sinners that are needing grace. Every one of us is in that category, and others are as well. And so we, we approach them with mercy and compassion, just as, as God has been merciful and compassionate to us. And in so doing, we image God, who is often described in the Old Testament according to his hesed, his loving kindness, his covenant love and faithfulness. Jesus also hints in the parable of the sheep and goat that we will be judged in some way, at least in part, on the mercy we show to others for his sake when we see others through his eyes. He also calls us to purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, society today can fall into bad, the bad habits or sins of, of using people for their own purpose, cheating, lying, playing the game to get ahead. Jesus calls his disciples to have a purity of motives and intentions. It's not just about the ends. It's about the means that we use to get there. And since the heart was, in the Old Testament idea, the center of one's being, it also includes our mind, our wills, our emotions. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, Jesus said. In fact, it's a condition of standing before God, standing in God's presence, according to Psalm 24. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. He also calls us to peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Well, our society promotes rights and tries to guarantee our rights with lawsuits and labor strikes and lobbying in D.C. While our society promotes aggressiveness and, and competitiveness, the, the I win if you lose mentality, Jesus calls his disciples to be promoters of peace among people and promoters of peace with God. The triune God is the ultimate peacemaker. And thus, to be one ourselves is to be a chip off the block, if you will, of our Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus means, I think, when he says, they, they will be called children of God. If you have that peacemaking is part of uh, your life, then it, it will show that you are imaging God. You are, like a you are a child of God. But Paul also reminds us that we have been given peace and reconciliation with God so that in response we become reconcilers and peacemakers, Christ's ambassadors, so that others may find that same peace. And Jesus calls us to be revolutionary. Revolutionary. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. While our society counsels us not to rock the boat, but rather go along with the crowd, Jesus calls us to be revolutionary, to live differently to speak out against immorality, to be willing to be unpopular. I like the way the message fleshes this out in modern-day language. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. 
What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they're uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Thomas Bailey and David Kennedy in their book, The The American Pageant, tell a story about Abraham Lincoln, which they believe applies. They write, after Abraham Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing the slaves during the Civil War, he was condemned by the London Times as a sort of moral American pope, destined to be Lincoln the last. After Lincoln's assassination, however, The paper realized his greatness, saying Abraham Lincoln was as little a tyrant as any man who ever lived. He could have been a tyrant if he pleased, but he never uttered so much as an ill-natured speech. Then they go on and say, in the Christian life, there will be times when we must take an unpopular stand, at work, at school, even at church, and stubbornly stick to principle. We will be called all manner of names, but if we're in God's will, we'll be vindicated certainly in the next life, but sometimes in this one, end quote. As a disciple of Jesus, do you find yourself in this list of character qualities? If we're honest, we probably get too caught up sometimes in our world's values. Now, being revolutionaries doesn't mean we completely separate ourselves from the world. We are to be, as the saying goes, in the world but not of the world. Yet we're also to act for the sake of the world, as Jesus will go on to say in verses 13 through 16 when he calls us to be salt and light in the world. It's hard to say how the first disciples reacted to Jesus' call to be revolutionary, but they followed because they wanted to be part of the kingdom vision Jesus held before them. To which kingdom do we belong? If we follow Jesus, our revolutionary leader, we become part of a revolutionary movement that goes against the grain of the world. We live lives differently from our world, and we seek to be salt and light within our world. Is that true of us? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We realize that we don't always aspire to be revolutionaries. Sometimes we just want to live our lives quietly and not have anyone take notice. And yet, you called your disciples to be those who would speak out for you and against the values of the culture. So help us to be brave enough to do so. Help us to so desperately want to be your disciples that we might live in this way and take on this character. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by singing together, Shout for the Blessed Jesus Reigns. If you're following along and lift up your hearts, it's number 261. We're going to sing the first four verses, and then after the benediction, we'll use the last verse as our doxology. Shout for the Blessed Jesus Reigns. Let's stand. (laughs) 